Uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you want to open up your Bibles there. We've been talking about exile. And uh, Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, he uses this term, he, he addresses it to the exiles. And Peter is picking up on this Old Testament language of uh, how Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, how Abraham's in exile, how uh, Israel uh, was exiled out of Egypt and then later exiled out of uh, the promised land because of sin. And he's picking up on this theme of exile. And he's saying to us as followers of Jesus, in the same way, we're exiles. And then he is telling us as exiles how we are to live in the times and days in which we live. And uh, so there's been a lot of instruction in that, and we've been kind of through that. And we're going to cover this a couple of times, but this is the first time. I just want to begin to address this question now. Uh, Peter has been bringing up exiles and all these different things. We've had some, some tough sermons the last uh, few weeks. I hope this one is just a little bit more um, tangible and, and practical. I think they all have been, but this one hopefully maybe a little bit more. In, in the sense of... How do we, as Christians today, how do we live in this idea of what does it look like for us to keep our identity and live at exiles at the same time? Okay? How, do we, how do people recognize us? How do they see us? How do they go, oh, they're different, they're believers uh, from last week, 1 Peter 3.15. You know, how does somebody notice your hope? How does somebody see? How do we keep our identity as exiles? And uh, we're going to look at that uh, from 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to look at four things this morning, three on your notes. Uh, we're going to center our life on Christ, we're going to abstain from cultural norms, and we're going to keep on loving as Christ loved. And the fourth thing is we're going to come to the table, and we'll talk about that when we get. But communion is one of those things that helps us to keep our identity in Christ. So those are the four things that we're going to look at uh, this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to look at the first 11 verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time uh, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that, through, that though judged in the flesh... The way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we have a, a nice little section here. Uh, if you look up just real quickly uh, at verse 6, that one's kind of the one that kind of stands out of what is 
Peter talking about here, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Uh, look, we, when, before we come to Christ, we are dead in our transgressions. The gospel is not preached to you know, graveyards. It's preached to people who are alive, but they are spiritually dead. And this actually goes back to our interpretation or my interpretation of the first Peter passage about uh, um, Jesus preaching to those in prison, right? And we talked about how Noah, Christ preached through Noah, uh, and he was preaching to living people, but they were later condemned. And sometimes we talk about people in past tense. And so here again, we have the idea of the gospel being preached to those who are dead. For though judge the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirits the way God does. So they have an opportunity for life. So three things in keeping our identity this morning. Uh, center our life on Christ, abstain from cultural norms, and keep on loving the way Christ loves. So first of all, keeping our identity. The way that we keep our identity is to center our life on Christ. And he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking and then in verse 2, so that, that to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human presence, but for the will of God. So three ways that we center our life on Christ. First of all, by thinking as he does. By thinking the way that Jesus thinks. Think. Now, I've, I've said this before, but when I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, it was a really popular thing for youth to, uh, there was a, a what would Jesus do, t-shirts and bracelets and hats and everything. And I had a pretty good youth-sized youth group. And so one day I said, how many of you own something with WWJD on it? And almost all the kids raised their hand. And I said, okay, how many of you one time this week have read anything from the Gospels? Nobody. Now, how would we know what Jesus would do if we don't spend time learning from Jesus. Actually, thinking, and we can't say think like Jesus unless you're actually spending time with Jesus. So how do we think like Jesus? Three things. Scripture. We have at our church a reading program to read through the New Testament every year and the Psalms and the Old Testament over two years. And, I, you know... I know I talk about this a lot, um, but I just don't know how we can think and act and be like Jesus unless we're spending regular, regular time in God's word. Sunday morning is not enough. Small group is not enough. We need to be in God's word. Now, I already hear some of the objections because some of you are going, Dave, I'm doing the reading right now and we're in 2 Kings. Tell me what I'm learning about Jesus. Well, you know, um, I, I understand that this section on the kings is very difficult um, and we'll have small group tonight and we'll, I'll ask the question, what stood out to you? So I'm going to use my what stood out to you comment now here so my small group will hear it again. But... One of the things that stood out to me is there's a couple kings that are mentioned. I mean, there's a lot of kings that are mentioned, right? And so, one, we come in 2 Kings chapter 12 to this Jehoash. And Jehoash was like 16 when he becomes king. 
And, uh, and it says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That was, that's, that's the good comment you want behind your name in 2 Kings. It said, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he didn't remove the high places. That was a negative knock on him. And then uh, he, he does a bunch of temple fixing up and different things like that. And then they all end with, and the rest of his acts, aren't they recorded in this? La, 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 la. And then a few chapters later, in chapter, what is it? It's chapter 15, and I, I'm not going to get his name right, Azira. And uh, he becomes king, and it says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But the high places were not removed. And so the Lord gave him leprosy. And I said, well, wait a second. That's not fair. Yeah, that's just my human thinking. That's not fair. But, you know, the reality is, Grace is this period of time where God says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you more mercy is a period of time where God doesn't give us what we deserve. But then sometimes he goes, you know what? I'm going to give you what you deserve. And it's a good reminder for us that sometimes just doing the same thing is not enough. And there's all sorts of these little warnings that come up as we read Scripture. Now we've been reading through Titus, and that's a little bit easier to read, and 2 Timothy. But the idea is this. Look, how are we growing in our understanding of who God is, what he's like, and what he's calling us to do? And to say, I'm going to think like Jesus without spending time in his word, that just doesn't make sense. Second, one of the ways that we begin to think like Jesus is through prayer. Now, Prayer we think of too often as just me saying a bunch of stuff to God and hoping some of it hits the ceiling and God takes it. But more than that, prayer is God is a conversation with a holy God in which I listen, which he changes my heart, in which there's a conversation going on. And, and so we need to be in prayer. And then we talk about worship. Um, and worship beyond just singing uh, we have defined worship here as an active response to God whereby we declare his worth. And so we have this in uh, chapter uh, 4, verse, um, where is it, 10. As each of you has received his gift, use it to serve one another. That's worship. It's an active response where we do something in service to glorify God. So how do we change our thinking? Scripture, prayer, worship, just a few things. Um, also, uh, how do we center our life on Christ? Through suffering. Um, and I don't want to build up next Sunday too much, but we're talking about suffering, so you definitely want to be here. Um, <laughs> yay. Um, but Peter says a lot about suffering. And it's really kind of interesting to me, the range of suffering. Because he talks about Christ's suffering. And we can picture that. Um, and then he says, it was kind of interesting because the suffering he mentions in this passage is people malign you when you don't go to their orgies and their drunken parties. But you go, well, that's not suffering. So there's a pretty big range there of what Peter is referring to as suffering. And so I want you to be encouraged this morning. There's something about suffering um, and again, we're going to talk more about this next week, but they just remind us of the story. And it goes something like this in this passage. Christ suffered. Verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh. And when Christ suffered, he defeated sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so that he, 
so, so as, verse 2, to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Christ suffered defeating sin so that we, in faith, as we receive Christ, as we repent of our sins and follow him, that we leave this old way of life. And what Peter says in verse 3 is really interesting. For that time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So what he says is, I don't, it doesn't matter when you came to Christ. I don't care if you grew up in the church. I don't care if you came to Christ a, a year ago. He says that however you lived before Christ, you had enough. It was enough. Now move on from that. Now some of us that grew up in the church, we, we heard these, these testimonies when we go to church on Sunday evening. Some of you remember them, and some of you get up and say, oh, well, before I came to Christ, I had a bunch of money and slept with a bunch of girls and did a bunch of this, 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 and drugs and all this stuff. And then I came to Jesus. And you're like, why did he just spend a half hour talking about before Christ and five minutes after Christ? And some of us kids grew up in church kind of going, ooh, we need a before and after story. You know what? We don't need a before story. The after story is so much better. And I think that I grew up with a wrong view that if I was going to understand the world, then I had to experience it. Which, by the way, is the lie that Adam and Eve bought off in the garden. Do you want to define good and evil on your own, or do you want God to define it? And I was sharing with my students this week in one of my classes, when when we talk about this idea of sin Um, there was nobody that was more human on the face of this planet than Jesus. He was the perfect human being. He was fully God and fully man, but he didn't need to do all that other stuff. And so Peter says there was a time for that, and it's over, and it's enough. Um, So uh, Christ suffered, defeating sin, so we leave the old way. God will judge the old way, verse 5. And we are given a new life in Christ. That's the gospel. Christ defeated sin. When we place our faith and we repent of our sin and trust in him, we are given new life. Be encouraged. That suffering, something Christ did, and we will encounter it in different ways too. So keeping our identity, center our life on Christ through his thinking, his sufferings, and third, his will. Uh, He says there uh, in verse 2 that uh, the passions, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There needs to be a change in what we're going after. No longer what the world is going after, but our passion is to do the will of God. And we all freak out when we start talking about the will of God. How do I know the will of God? And look, I think there's, there's some clear things that are clearly in God's will and some things that are outside of God's will. And he is saying, you, you want to know what God's will is? Love God, love people. Make disciples. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be okay there. Second, we need to abstain from some things. And I, I want to remind you and, and those that are uh, maybe visiting with us, if you go back to chapter 2 of 1 Peter, um, as he is, is going through this, in, in verses 11 and 12, He says, beloved, I urge you, and here's that phrase again, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain 
from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And what I said several weeks ago is that this is kind of the theme of this section of passages all the way through this, from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. What, what Peter has been fleshing out is what it looks like to abstain from certain things and keep certain things. And if you want to be, keep your identity in Christ, there's certain things you're not going to do, and there's certain things you are going to do. And it, it, it's rooted back all the way back to chapter 1, of B, or chapter 2, uh, be holy because I am holy. Right? So it's all rooted in this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So Peter gives us a list. And these lists are always scary. But I want to look at it this way. If you just kind of glance over at your text and you're, you know, I'm going from the ESV, yours might be a little bit different. But in verse 3, he says, uh, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So we're going to look at first what it is the Gentiles want to do. And then second, as we move along in this little section, in verse 4, he says, with respect to this. So what, with, and then he says in verse 5, but, and then he says for in verse 6. So we're going to go through that. What, with, but, and for. What? Here's the things that the Gentiles do. And it's a pretty dark list. And as I was going over this list, I'm going, you know what? Maybe I should just skip this. I don't think anybody uh, in our church is doing uh, these things fully, I hope. Um, I don't know what your Friday night, Thursday night, Friday night look like, but it's a pretty bad list here. But here's the idea. It's not that we can get, should be trying to get as close to this list as possible without stepping over. If we want to keep our identity we want to look different, then we should be staying as far away from this stuff as possible. That's what looks different. So here's the list. We'll go pretty quickly. He says, first of all, sensuality, or in the old King James Version, lasciviousness. Pretty big word. The biblical usage in the King James includes unbridled lust, excess, outrageousness. One definition is whatever is disgraceful and morally impure. Okay? Now, you're not sitting around your house, most of you, especially Baptists, you know, have been around for a long time. You're not going, hey, what can we do this week that is disgraceful and morally impure? And I, I, want, I want you to know that your non-Christian neighbors that did party all night Friday night really late or whatever it is, they're not sitting around the house either going, hey, what can we do today? It's, but sometimes there's things that bring us to that point. How do we stay away from that? Next word is passions. It has the idea of coveting, desires, craving. If you're looking at those things and going, that kind of looks kind of fun, am I missing out? That's passions. He mentions drunkenness, and I looked up the Greek word, and it means drunkenness. <laughs> it's pretty basic. Uh, there, was, there was no need for further study there. I actually missed a word on my, on my notes, and I was reading this morning, uh, and I, I don't know if I did it on purpose or on accident, but uh, he has orgies listen, listed there. Uh, I skipped right over that on my notes, and, uh, and I think the King James is uh, Reverly or something like that, and uh, you know, I looked up uh, that word, and it's actually, it actually 
was kind of a mess of a study that led you down just a whole bunch of different rabbit holes, but it seems like Peter was thinking of something specific here to me, and that there was some practices in the Greek-Roman world uh, where (laughs) it's described as half-drunk men uh, drinking, uh, would parade around with torches, and they would go to uh, guys' and gals' houses, and they would sing, and the party would just go till late in night. And, so, and it was all about worshiping the god of the vine, okay, so wine. And so it was, it, and these parties, I don't know, it's really hard to imagine, but somehow apparently the drinking uh, led to kind of... Um, sexual activity. I don't, I don't think that happens in our society at all, but somehow drinking impaired their thinking and it led to a bunch of, you know, just wild living. And so Peter's like going, you know that party that marches down the street? Don't join it. That's not a bad, it's not a bad transition. You know that party that's marching down the street, or that party down the street, maybe you shouldn't join it. Um, And then uh, he goes on with, um, in the ESV, it's drinking parties. You see, there's two things that keep coming up. Drinking and sex. There's just back, he's just going back and forth in a different way. It's like, if you're trying to go, wait a minute, did he leave one out? He didn't. He covered all of his bases on these two topics. And the drinking uh, parties, there's two words uh, in the Old King James and in the, in the original la- language, uh, reveling and banquets. And basically here, they both involve drinking. And so there's like reveling involves drinking and these banquets involve drinking. So he's like drinking, drinking, party, don't just don't go there. Now drinking parties, folks, now we're getting into something that some of you may have to wrestle with a little bit. Um, Because we don't go almost anywhere in our society where that isn't part of the main part of the party. And um, Christians need to have a stance that is clear on how they're wrestling with that. But that's not the point of this sermon. Lawless idolatry. And when I read that, I said, isn't all idolatry lawless? And the first commentary I read said, by definition, idolatry is lawlessness. But here, the lawless idolatry seems to be idolatry that even the Gentile would say, now you're getting out of hand. And so I thought, well, and there's really no lawless idolatry. And as I was thinking about this, I just, just go with me for a second. There's been a few times, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. Your football team wins the Super Bowl, or your football, it doesn't even matter, win or lose. And all of a sudden, the newscast scans to the downtown of that city where a bunch of football fans are lighting cars on fire, and I'm like, how is this a celebration? It just seems like lawlessness. But then there's concerts where this happens. There's political rallies where this happens. How do we, 
how do we endorse our view of a candidate or a position while rioting? So this is the idea of when we put something is so important that we'll break all the laws to enjoy it or express it, this is lawless idolatry. And so I go, well, maybe we get a little bit closer to that than we like to admit. Now he says, with respect to this, verse four, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, they make fun of you. So two things here, just real quick. The world is surprised when you don't participate. Are they? Is your, the world that you live in, the way that you relate, are they surprised by the things that you don't participate in? It's a good question to ask yourself. And then saying, why do they malign you? Here's just the thing. By not doing something, what do people often say? You're judging me. No, I'm not. I'm not participating. Misery, sin, loves company. Now, again, I was a youth pastor for many years. And, you know, like it or not, a lot of times on campuses, there's just groups, right? There's the athletic group and the smart group and the cheerleaders. And, you know, was, you know the, the athletic group is broken up by, you know, different sports. And then there's the drama. They're usually called geeks, but there's the drama group. And I was in that group. And there's all these groups. And sometimes in high school, there was people that were left out of a group. But there was always, in my schools, there was always one group that would always accept you. And that was the drug group, whatever the drug was. There was only one requirement to be in that group. You took the drug. That was it. You, you didn't have to be athletic or smart. It's the easiest group to get into. And so we are often fighting to be a part of a group, to be accepted, and we'll even argue and saying, well, I'm trying to be relevant so I can share Christ with my friends. And so we participate so much that there's no difference. So he says, but, verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I'll just say this, if he's going to judge those people, he will also, we also have to stand and give an account. And then verse uh, 6, 4, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. Look, the, the, what we are to preach is life and, and, and newness and change in Jesus Christ. So first of all, uh, we need to keep our identity. Second, we need to abstain from some things. And I, I'm not going to make you a list and say this is okay and this is not okay. The church has done that. It's become very legalistic. Um, but it is something I will say that my wife and I talk about often. How are we, and I get it, I'm a pastor, so how are we being viewed? But we're more concerned with what we're communicating with our kids right now, okay? I've given up trying to please you guys a long time ago. <laughs> I'm not going to get there. And I'm not trying to please my kids, but I am trying to make sure that I'm being consistent in the message that I'm preaching to them. So we have that conversation all the time. 
When we go to work parties for Janine, we talk about what is, it, what is it we're presenting? What are we doing? We're thinking about how we are perceived, not because we want people to like us. I mean, again, if, if I wanted people to like us, we would not have become Baptist preachers. But, if, but we want to be a light. And then finally, keep on loving as Christ has loved. Look at verse 7. Uh, and here's the overarching reminder here. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So how do, what, we've talked about some things that we maybe need to abstain from. So what is it that we should keep? Number one, through self-controlled, Christ-centered prayer. That's what we're to keep. How do we make God's love evident? Through self-controlled, Christ-centered prayers. Let me read this again. You you have to catch this. The end of all things is is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, listen, for the sake of your prayers. This is the second time that Peter has said, if you're doing the wrong thing, it hinders your prayer life. That's important to me. If you want to keep the communication going with God, if you want to see God working through your life, then husbands, love your wives. Second, be self-controlled, all of us, and be sober-minded. In other words, have clear thinking. How do we have clear thinking? We read scripture, we're in worship, we're in prayer. I mean, these things all tie together. Self-control. When we are out of control, God can't work through through us because we're not submitting to him. Keep on loving as Christ loved through this love. He says, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Look at it again, verse eight. Above all, keep loving some people. Keep loving the ones you like. No, man, that's, here's, I think, and then, he, and then he goes on to say, love covers a multitude of sins, which seems out of context here, but here is what I believe that Peter is saying. The Christian life equals community. If you're going to be in the Christian life, you're going to be in community with other Christians. You're exiled, you're the minority, you're cast out, Uh, the other group is maligning you, so the group that you're going to be in is going to be the Christian community. Uh, I just listened to a really good podcast this week, and the guy was talking about, uh, he did really in-depth research on what some of these house churches in Rome and in Asia would look like. And I learned so much stuff I hadn't really learned before. He said, but, you know, we see that there was, of these letters, right? There was slaves, and there was citizens, uh, so there was rich and poor, And they were all meeting together, something you didn't do in that culture. And they were meeting in houses. And and so you've got these group of people who don't usually meet together, getting together in these houses, and they're singing songs, and they're worshiping, and they're acting like they're all equals. And he mentioned the the passage where it says, speaking in tongues, which, you know, we don't go down that road. But he said, you know, when the outsider comes in, and he says, look, the only place big enough for any of these house churches was in your little uh, porch area. 
And you know what those porch areas were was your shop. It's where people came to buy the chairs you were selling or the fruit you were selling. Or, and so he's saying th- where you're having church was like right in the middle of your home business. So people could be coming in at any point in time going, what in the world is going on here? Okay, now sometimes people walk into our church and go, what is going on here? But most people know. And so there's this outside in thing. And he is saying, look, if you're going to be in the Christian life, you're going to be in community. And what we know from scripture and from life is that community brings problems, brings hurt. When you're in community, we rub up against each other the wrong way. And so he says, I want you to have love, which is this community thing. And we recognize when you're doing that, that there's going to be hurt in the community. And so hurt then finds healing in forgiveness. Here's something that's happening in the community. We're all in community together. We rub up. We hurt each other's feelings. And we're being reminded, love covers a multitude of sins, that hurt finds its healing in forgiveness. Now that's hard. And I think in here, implied, is two different ways that forgiveness happens. Forgiveness happens through loving forgetfulness. Love covers a multitude of sins. You know what? In love, I'm going to let that go. Now, some of us, we keep thinking about it, and we can't let it go. So sometimes forgiveness happens through loving correction as well. It happens through loving uh, uh, again, loving for, uh, forgetfulness and loving correction. That's, that's community life right there. Now, he mentions a few things more specifically. Uh, in verse 9, he mentions hospitality, which uh, we try to emphasize here. And again, hospitality isn't just uh, welcome to church. Hospitality is welcome to my life, welcome to my home, uh, welcome to spending time together. There was an interesting research project. Again, I just kind of read through it. I need to write this stuff down. Uh, but this guy did this research project, and they found that business deals, this is not a church study, business deals uh, were more successful when the business people shared a meal together. And there was a greater amount of success if in that meal they all ate the same thing. Different than going to a restaurant and everybody getting picked their same thing. But the business deal lasted longer, was more successful if they all got together and ate a meal together and had the same thing, shared something in common. Now, if that's true in the business world, which everybody's going, ah, you're going to have to show me that research project. How much more in the church? How much more when we really sit face to face with people and, and work these things out? And then through service. In verses 10 and 11, he's talking about using our gifts and serving one another, if it speaks, it's service, do it with God. And so whatever that is that you're doing, that you're doing that together, that's part of that community and sharing in those things. So here's some application and action and where we're going over the next few weeks. Uh, we want to talk about how to keep our identity uh, in a world that really wants to have us just accept their identity or their definition of good and evil. And I, look, I, I've been a pastor in Baptist churches most of my life now, it seems like. And, uh, 
Um, I, you know, I don't get involved in the political discussions that some of you love, Frank, but I, um, <laughs> I do occasionally watch the news or read articles, and uh, there's, a, there's some talk going around that uh, churches could uh, lose their uh, 5013C, their nonprofit status, if they don't uh, accept certain uh, doctrines that the world wants us to accept. And I, I'm going to, I know some of you are a little freaked out about that. I've seen the, I look at Facebook. But let me just say this, and um, I want to say this in all honesty. It doesn't scare me. Now, I don't want that, but it doesn't scare me. And here's why. Those benefits that we enjoy are an American. The, the church has existed for centuries without nonprofit status. Um, and so here's the thing. Uh, pastors will take a large cut in pay, number one. Number two, you, if this ever happens, and I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not trying to be uh, the negative person, but I believe it will happen. Uh, maybe not this election, but in the next few elections, I do believe this will happen. Um, I think it's where we're going. I think it's, it's, it's pushing that way. It's going to be, I mean, God can do amazing things, but I think we'll end up there uh, without um, a huge revival. And so uh, pastors will take, many pastors will take a huge cut in pay. You will not be given a tax break for your giving. The Bible doesn't say anything about a tax break for your giving, by the way. And I, people always say to me, Dave, if this happens, the church will give less. And I'm saying, if you look at the percentages, the churches can't give much less than they're already giving. You're not, some of you are not already taking advantage of what you could get with a 10% giving. And so, look, we're called to tithe. We're not called to get a tax break. Now, it's nice, it's wonderful, but that's not what you're called to do. Shouldn't be your motivation for giving. And then third, we'll have to start paying taxes on this building, which that, that's the real scary part. <laughs> I don't know I don't know what they are, but I'm assuming it's more than my taxes. Um, so those, that's what's happening. Yeah, that's what happened. I don't want to panic about that. How do we keep our identity? There's certain things that we refuse to do. We'll abstain from them. There's other things that we will keep on doing, and one of them is love. And the third thing that we'll do is we'll keep proclaiming the Lord's table. And you know, we do that as a church in a way that is very uh, church. Um, And we have a tradition here, and most of you know it, some of you are here, and it's, uh, it's, every church is a little bit different, but our elders line up at the back, and they they march, they don't march, but they walk very fast, by the way. I've, I did it once. I'm like, whoa, these guys got a pace. And they walk down the aisle and they skirt out here and then we pass out the bread and everybody holds the bread and the pastor says some things and prays. We eat the bread and then we, we do the whole thing again. And I just, what, what if you were having church in the home? What if you were having church with your small group? I mean, would mom and dad walk to the kitchen and go, we're coming? Oh. You'd sit around a table, maybe you'd sit in your living room, and you'd break bread. And, you know, some of you would have gluten-free bread, and some of you wouldn't. That's just, it's the world we live in, I can't stop it. But you'd have bread. It might not even be unleavened bread. It's happened before. 
And you'd break bread, and you would talk about what the bread means. Maybe it would just be you and your wife. Maybe it'd be you and your kids, or you and your grandkids, or you and your Christian neighbor. And after that, you might take a, a little juice, or maybe even some red wine, I don't know, and you'd, you'd, you'd say, this, this represents Jesus' body. And this represents his blood shed for us. And you would do it all without a pastor. Because we're all the priesthood of believers. So today, in just a little while, the um, kids are going to come back in. They're going to go back with their parents. Um, we're going to dismiss. You just, we're going to sing a song. Um, we're going to have just some piano playing. And I just you can come up. There's a table at the front and there's a table at the back. And... We just want you to take communion on your own, without prompting. Have a conversation with the person next to you. Maybe you see somebody who can't get up. Maybe you take them communion. We will have one of the ushers here um, passing out communion. If, if it's uh, Some of you, it, you don't need to get up, and it's okay. We'll bring it to you. Some of you can get up. And you say, well, are you going to dismiss us? No, there's no order. There's no, there's no marching. There's just communion. And we're just going to spend a little bit of time. And what if, what if we had to do it? You know there's churches that do it in the dark, right? They have to. They do it in villages and in homes and in churches by secret. Some people might be so afraid that they don't buy the bread and the juice at the same place. So we can come to the table and remember our Lord as followers of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to have the worship team come up here. And the benevolent uh, offerings are up here. We're going to take our, our regular offering at the end. Um, the kids are going to come back in as we're singing the song. I see them. I see heads bobbing around, I think, back there. And then after we sing the song, I'm going to pray. And then I'm just going to dismiss you at some point in time to come to the communion table. And uh, even, even asking the worship team that they can, they can go down and, and grab communion, go to the front or the back. If you need help, we'll bring it to you. Uh, if, or if you need help, just ask the person next to you. to get. That's even better. Do it as a thing. So um, we're doing communion um, as families or couples or even as individuals um, without all the extra stuff, okay, as a way to live in exile before our Lord.